everyone. My name is Anna Lomprier and this is Jules O'Neill and we are the Wayfinders for the Cornwall Memory Cafe Network. So today we have a very special guest. Her name is Pauline Hardingers and she is part of the Liscard Area Memory Cafe. Um, she was their chairperson or lady, um, but she is now their treasurer and she's here to share a little bit about the NHS Continuing Healthcare Fund, um, which a lot of people don't know about. So we are really excited to find out a bit more. This for me is completely new because for me, how I understand it is this is the dealings with adult social care and how what and how you're entitled, what you're entitled to if you're going for a care package and support. Tell us, tell me your story then. Right, I'll start at the beginning. My mum was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2000, but she'd had it a long while before that, I discovered, because she'd been doing rather strange things. So mental health came out and they told me she got Alzheimer's. So I said, what's that? just memory loss. So I said, well, what happens from now then? Oh, you just get on with it, right? So fine. Well, eventually she went beyond my capabilities basically. And I ended up in hospital with stress-related problems. And the doctor suggested she went into care. All that happened was she had a financial assessment, nothing to do with health needs or mental health or anything else. She didn't own her own house as such because I was living here and it was partly my house. But they disregarded that. So they started making her pay for her care, basically. But I did a bit of research and found she shouldn't have been paying. So to cut a long story short, I took the NHS to task, refused to pay any more money, got threatened with a court of protection. In the meantime, she'd had to go into a nursing home because she'd gone beyond the capabilities of the residential home she was in. They couldn't cope with her. So she's in a nursing home. I was told I got to pay and I said, I don't think so. So that was when they threatened me with the court of protection. So I told them, feel free to take me wherever you like because I'm getting a little bit fed up with all this, you see. Well, I knew they wouldn't because I knew I'd done my research. Well, it took me 18 months and I fought them and I won. They backed down in the end and said um, it was quite evident by the evidence they collected, she should have been in receipt of continuing healthcare from day one. So to take all my proof of payments into Peninsula House and um, basically I took all my proof of payments in and the guy's doing um, his form filling and uh, he said, oh, you do realise you have to sign a secrecy document? I said, really? I said, what's happened to freedom of information then? Well, it's a local issue between you and us. And then he said, I hasten to add it's not a condition of payment. I said, I hope not because I could sue you for blackmail. So he went a bit red and carried on writing and then he shoved it in front of me. So I signed it but put under duress under my signature. So basically it wasn't worth the paper it was written on. But anyway, I waited a while because my mum was still alive at that point and I didn't want to go rocking boats or anything. So, and then I had um, a strange meeting with an old friend up in Chester at a funeral and he was asking me how mum was. And I said, oh, she's in a nursing home, told him what I'd done and everything. He said, oh, that needs to go in the papers, you see. <laughs> so the next thing, I had an investigative journalist ringing me up. Was I sure I'd put under duress under my signature? I said yes. 
And then a journalist came down and interviewed me. And then it was all in the national papers, basically, about my gagging order. Uh, why did they want to gag, etc. Daily Telegraph put my phone number in by mistake. And I had phone calls from all over the country. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyway. And then I was in all the papers. I was on Spotlight. I was on Radio 4. I've been to hundreds of meetings and I've helped people with continuing health care and retrospective reviews, etc. But what got me was that when mum died, the doctor had been out to visit her about six hours before she died. And you phone, I had to go and stay. Well, I stayed for a while in the night because I thought I'd be with her. But she hung on and hung on and I had to come home. But the doctor rang me and said her chest was clear as a bell. Would I like her taken to Derriford to rehydrate her? So I said, well, why would you want to do that when she's um, at the last stages of Alzheimer's? She's not going to bounce back and make a miraculous recovery. Well, what do you want us to do then, he said. I said, well, leave her where she is. She's been bed nurse. She's got morphine patch. She's not in any pain. They're doing all the bed, you know, mouth care and bed nurse. They're turning her. Anyway, she died about seven o'clock the next morning and I wasn't with her because I'd gone home. So they rang me. So I went over and said my goodbye sort of thing. Anyway, when the coroner's, when the death certificate came through from the coroner, A, cause of death, acute bronchial pneumonia. So I phoned him up. I said, excuse me, my mother didn't have acute bronchial pneumonia. Well, according to the autopsy, I said, well, she didn't have one of those either because I donated her brain through dementia research at Bristol. And I have to take the brain within 72 hours. So <clears throat> then I phoned up the brain bank coordinator and got told that they rarely got Alzheimer's as a cause of death because the government didn't recognise it. And I said, well, the coroner told me that, that the government didn't recognise Alzheimer's as cause of death. Because I said to him, well, if you couldn't swallow anymore, how long do you think you'd last? So I said, as far as I'm concerned, you falsified a legal document and put the phone down. But the lady at the brain bank said the reason that it happened was because for every pound cancer research got, Alzheimer's was getting eight pence. And by having to recognise it as a cause of death, meant they had to invest more in research, basically. And that's what it all boiled down to. So I'm still annoyed about it. And I've been out there shouting. Wow. So that's the story in a nutshell. <laughs> and I've got all the evidence here. I've got the death certificate. I got the report from the brain bank in Bristol. I've got everything. And it just annoys me to think that it's corrupt from the government down, basically. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Yeah, I hear you. I I think um, there was a lot going on during COVID as well, where people were being told that... Oh, they... this was in 2007. Yeah, this is the thing. This was a long was time ago. She died yeah. in 2009, but this was in 2007 that I went to the papers. And then got told all this at the very end. So, look, we could focus on how corrupt the government is and that sort of thing. Uh, but if we're wanting your interview to be, you know, you've obviously been through a hell of a lot and you've got this lived experience of this whole scenario, we're wondering if you could talk to us for people listening about people's rights when it comes to adult social care. So you're sort of saying that you knew, um, you know, they came to you initially and only did... Um, financial assessment. A financial yeah. assessment. A financial and that's still happening now. I've had other that's carers still happening today. 
Yeah. I've, now, I've been, I've uh, sat in, I've sat in on assessments of like people having, you know, an assessment for continuing healthcare. And um, first, I, I went in to a friend of mine. I said, don't tell them my name because they all know who I am. Just say a friend's coming in for a bit of moral support. <laughs> so I sat there very quietly. Jules, shut up. <laughs> I sat there very quietly. Never said a word. The first question the OT asked was, do you own your own home? Well, they're not allowed to do that. And plus the fact, one of their horrible habits in a nursing home, because the only time you can get funded nursing care is in a nursing home. Well, by the time somebody's accessed a nursing home, it's because they need 24-7 nursing care, not funded nursing care. It should be continuing health care. And... Um, I found that what they do is they tried it on with me, but it didn't work because I knew quite a lot by then. Six weeks after mum had been in the nursing home, they trotted along. Oh, she's well settled. She's predictably unpredictable. And they dropped down one of her scores because they were yeah. assessing a met need as no mm -hmm. need. They're not allowed to do that either. So Can you explain a met need, the... what that means? Because you explained it really well, well to me um, in the car because I wasn't quite yeah. sure what you meant by that. Well, if you've got a need and you've had to go into a nursing home for 24-7 care, regardless of what you've got, whether it's Alzheimer's, whatever, one of the dementias, you need 24-7 care. Well, obviously, social services don't fund 24-7 care, but they need nursing care on top of that. It's a complex need. And when I was on the Trust Carers Committee, the CEO, I asked him what complex meant in conjunction with dementia. He didn't know and took it to cabinet, came back the next month, and apparently it means care by more than one discipline. So when you've got complex needs, you've got medical needs, you might have physical needs, you've got social needs, you've got the lot, basically, so it's complex. So they should be yeah. having continuous health care. So, so the trouble you know, is... You're going... Can I ask I don't... Then? So... Is that because then some care in that complex needs scenario that some care would come from the NHS and that is free to everybody? No, that isn't how it works. If no. you've had to go in a nursing home and you need ongoing nursing care because you suffer with pressure sores, mobility, double incontinence, a lot, right? Well, the reason they have a social need is because of a primary health need. So what happens is they go in, the need gets met, and then they do another assessment, say, after six weeks and say that the patient has settled really well. So they drop the score down and pretend you don't need continuing healthcare anymore. They've assessed the met need as no need, and they're not allowed to do that. So that they make lawful. So because the need isn't seen as complex anymore, because they put in things to stop it being they, whatever, they've then they're saying yeah, they've it doesn't dealt exist with the need. Wow. Yeah, it's dealt with. It's been met. And then they So this is what happened. So Pauline, Pauline, I want I want you to tell me again then from um imagine that I've got some like my mum and um she's just been diagnosed and um you know I'm finding it difficult. I'm going to do a referral to adult adult social care. Can you tell me what the correct procedure, I can't speak properly, what the correct procedure should be? As if you're talking to a lay person, which you are really pretty much. 
Well, you're at home and you suddenly find out your mum, who's been living on her own and coping all right, suddenly isn't. You know, they've been wandering or they've been having falls or they're not eating properly. They're doing strange things like my mum was putting tea bags to dry all around the radiators, that sort of thing. You know, well, eventually, from a safe guarding point of view, you contact, contact adult social care. And they will do an assessment. Well, in the early days with Alzheimer's in particular, or even vascular dementia, sorry, my phone's pinging. Um, what they do, they, um, they assess you because you're needing social care at that point. It's not nursing care, it's not nursing needs, you just need support. So that is social needs. But when it gets to a point with Alzheimer's, because it's an organic progressive disease of the brain and it's terminal, as is most dementias, they're terminal. Um, eventually, it'll get to a point where it's gone beyond the legal remit of social services. So then, now it's the integrated care system. They should have an assessment for nursing needs, ongoing nursing needs. So, you know, that's when continuing healthcare should step in. But it doesn't. You know, they, they still class it as a social need. I mean, my mum was put in an EMI residential home, but even they couldn't cope with her because she'd gone beyond that care. She needed proper 24-7 registered nurse nursing care. Okay. But that's when go back, no, go back go back though to my to the scenario and the adult social care. Let's say um I've waited, I've put my referral in, and um finally they get in contact. What is the correct thing that they should do on that first contact they've had the notes of you know oh this is an elderly lady she's living on her own she's starting to do strange things you know she needs some some care support what is the first thing they should be doing before anything else what are the correct steps well the correct steps would be to assess that person and if she hasn't got anybody there caring for her under a safeguarding point of view, she may need a care package put in place. When it starts off, they can give you four visits a day, but they don't cover overnight. So once that person starts being a danger to themselves at night time, you know, like my mum, she did all very weird things. But once it becomes the state where you've got to have somebody there all the time, that's when they should have an assessment for a continuing healthcare package. Because if that person is at home and you want them to remain at home and you've got power of attorney, etc., once you get that continuing health care funding, it'll enable you to buy in more care and keep that person at home, which is what happened to my neighbour because I told her. Oh, so, so they were successful. So going back then, so if they come to me and my mum and they say, do you own your own home? What should they be? They should. So let's okay. Let's say then they don't do that. It's they, just the needs. So they it's shouldn't the be asking you what's your financial no. situation until no. they've done the actual needs part of the assessment. They need the assessment that has to be done first. If you read the Care Act between sections nineteen and twenty-three, it quite clearly states it's health before finance, but not many people adhere to that, and that is legislation. See, guidelines can be manipulated, but legislation has to be adhered to. And if you read the Care Act, it definitely states health before finance. 
And then so those help me. Yeah. Okay. So that's fantastic information. So then next question I've got is they turn around to me and they say, right, this is what your we suggest the care package should be. We think your mum needs four visits a day. We're prepared to give you 30 minutes of visit or 45 minutes of visit. It's 30. It's 30. Four times yeah. a day. At that point then, do they say you're going to now have a financial um, means test? Is that what they call it? Well, they call it means testing, but the, the point of fact is they have to assess. It's not just what the person can do. They have to assess the health needs. See, it's not just Alzheimer's. It's anything, really. The health needs have to be assessed before anything. So well, if that person... No... The finances shouldn't enter into it then, because if that person's doubly incontinent, for example, they're probably going to need more than four visits a day. You can't leave somebody in wet pads all night, yeah. you know, and that's when, as I say, it should be like an MDT, you know, a multidisciplinary team. So you'd have like, okay. you know, I think what I'm at, I think what I'm trying to get at is once they've made the decision, yes, this person needs a care package and they've decided on what that care package is, then ha and they do then they do a financial it, test. Yeah. If it's if it's just social needs, they can, as I say. But yeah. so that's that just checking that they're okay, popping yeah. in, making sure they've eaten, um, yeah. that kind of stuff, right? Okay. But nothing medical, basically. Only, nothing. Nothing yeah. medical. No nothing, personal care. Medical, mental, just personal care, which is what an H. Sorry, social services can do. They're like allowed washing, to do that. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, some people prefer to pay for it privately because they can then choose privately who they have to look after them for those mm -hmm. sessions. You know, that's a personal choice. But at the end of the day, if you're if they decide that you need to be in a care home, I mean, by then it would normally be nursing care because you get pressure sores, you know, and all sorts of things wrong with you. The rest of your so body starts breaking down. If a question so if you had a loved one with dementia and eventually they go into a residential a nursing residential home not a normal care home but a nursing residential it's home nursing that means that that is a medical need so they should not regardless of that they've got alzheimer's or whatever they shouldn't be paying for their care right is that that that's technically because well, they're in a nursing home not a residential yeah. it's not just medical it could be mental yeah. medical yeah. physical it can be anything, you know, but once you need that 24-hour-a-day care by a registered nurse, you see any care that's delegated by or overseen by a registered nurse is classed as nursing care, regardless of who carries it out. So I even if it was carers, but the, at the top is Anybody a nurse that decides everything. The nurse has delegated it. I mean, they have to do all sorts of things during the day, you know. They have to check their fluid intake and output. I mean, it's all quite complicated, you know, but this is where the NHS decide they'll just um, give you funded nursing care, which goes straight to the nursing home and not necessarily reducing your bill. But the only place you can get that is in a nursing home. You can't get it at home. You can't get it in residential care. You can only get it in a nursing home. 
So that's so, very crafty. So sometimes they'll <laughs> fund nursing care outside of the nursing home. No. Okay. Not allowed oh. to. Okay. No. Um, but the only place you can get it is in a nursing home. But by the time you've reached that stage and you're in a nursing home receiving 24-7 care with a registered nurse, I'd, I always ask to, to people to ask, could you break down the hours that the nursing care takes place? Because it's 24-7 yeah, at the end. questions that you tell people? Because I know you've helped a lot of people get um, try and fight for um, NHS uh, continuing health care. Because uh, you obviously advise them. What are kind of the things that they should be asking for their well, care? The things they've got or... to look out for. Yeah, well, the things they need to look out for is doing these assessments and assessing met needs as no needs for a start. Asking about funded nursing care when they suggest that. Well, how many hours a week, you know, is the nursing care happening? So if it's only a hundred and something pounds, I think, the high rate, you know, if somebody's got seven days a week nursing needs, a hundred and something pounds a week ain't going to cover it, is it? So adult social care in the meantime, if that person hasn't got any money, it's gone below 23,000, is it? I can't remember. Or 14. Adult social care have to fund it. Well, they're probably funding over the country thousands of people they shouldn't be funding because they should be having continuing health care. And I always said right from the word go, I got asked by the Alzheimer's Society to go to the first strategy meeting in Plymouth. <laughs> and I stood up in this room full of people and I said, the trouble is you've got NHS one end, social services the other, and people with dementia fall down the gap in the middle. So this lady told me I was being discourteous and there was a lot of people doing a lot of hard work out there. So I just said, I dare say there is, but I personally never came across any of them. Well, I didn't. Yeah. Nobody gave me any help. Nobody told me anything. So anyway, afterwards, they all, so a load of people that were in the audience there came up and um, agreed with what I'd said. So there should be one pot of money for anybody who's got a terminal illness. They're going to need ongoing nursing care, not less. It's not a social need. They need washing and dressing because they've got a primary health need. So instead of having a pot for the NHS and a pot for social services, they should have one pot for continuing health care. Yeah, That's yeah. how I see it. Okay, so we're coming to the end, and this is a practice, but it's been a brilliant recording. So maybe we can send this to Rory and see. I can talk for China and everybody else. <laughs> um, so can you give us three tips on what to think and what to look out for when you start this process? So you've probably said it already, but lay it out for me like I'm a, I can't understand at all three tips a i would say um make sure you do your research and ask the right questions when they do an assessment so you know what you're talking about because if they think that you know what you're talking about things go right because very quickly my daughter-in-law's dad had vascular dementia after a fall he had a bleed on the brain i was part of his care package i used to sit with him um, they did everything to the letter there because you've got the same surname as me. Funny that, wasn't it? Right from the word go in Derryford. And her mum, they did exactly the same. Everything was done to the letter. Wow. So that really did make me annoyed. There's not many Hardings around, is there, when you look at it? 
No. And they all know who I am. So, you know, when you know that they can do... You see, when they did the mini mental health test with her dad, it was in the middle of COVID. We all had masks on. I was sitting there with the other part of the family. The mental health nurse came in with a mask on, did the mini mental health test. When we got outside, she said, I knew I knew that surname. I've met you before. I said, yes, you have. But they did everything to the letter. So you see, they can. They can, yeah. It's about educating yourself, isn't it? And knowing what your rights are before you have you've these meetings. Yeah, and absolutely. I, and you've told me before that you've actually sat in on some meetings for other people that you've been helping. So you can have a friend or an advocate at these meetings. You oh, don't you just have, have an advocate, people, right? No, you take whoever you like in with you. They can't really tell you you can't because that's your right to have somebody there, you know, as, as a sort of. I know, a support in the background, basically. That's what you need. Is that two then, is take someone with you that might be able to support you and help you answer questions when you're a bit bit bamboozled? I'll tell you something. We'll share Pauline's number after this. (laughs) Stuart Cohen Cohen gives it to people, so I'm not really bothered. Um, (laughs) The thing about it is, I sat in on an assessment for a lady in a residential home, right? She was quite well gone. And her daughter had sold her cottage to pay for her care. She had a prolapse of the womb. She got all sorts of medical things wrong with her, apart from Alzheimer's, quite severe. Anyway, they did um, a multidisciplinary team assessment. And the social worker, I, they, the, the lady concerned didn't give her my name. She just said, I brought a friend with me. So I was sitting there really quiet, which is unusual for me. Didn't say a word. And then the social worker said to this lady, you won't get continuing health care in here because it's only residential. So excuse me now. I suddenly said, that's crap. And I went, oh, I said, sorry, that was totally unprofessional, but it's still crap. She went as red as a beetroot and couldn't wait to get out of there. I've heard lies and all sorts of being told. I could tell you, it's bad. Gosh, and it is shocking when you think if you're in the council and this is the role that you you've chosen to do that you would deliberately um, conceal <laughs> what mm. people are entitled to. I do. Oh, why do you think it's called the NHS's best kept secret? You listen to the TV, it's never mentioned continuing healthcare. It's always adult social care. And Alzheimer's is an organic progressive disease of the brain and it's terminal. It certainly isn't just a social need. So, you know, you tell me, I mean, it's been going on for years, decades even, and if they'd done it correctly the first time round years ago, they'd have probably found a cure by now. But, you know, they waste money hand over fist doing retrospective reviews. Because not only do they have to pay the money back, but they also have to pay interest on top of that. And I know a a person up country who um, his mother had a really bad stroke and was like in a vegetative state. And she was only in her 40s and she went on for a long, long while. They had to pay him back over a million pounds. Wow. So there you go. So impressive. One more question then. You just used the terminology. You said there's this, there's this like, is it um you named it? It what was it? It was the NHS part of it. Um funded nursing care, do you mean? Yes. 
Can you say it yeah. again? But you, can only, you can only get that in a nursing home. You can't get in a residential. You can't get it at home. It can only happen in a nursing home. So and that's you, where they get you because crafty. Are they charging? So you're saying that for some people with dementia who are getting funded nursing care in a nursing home, they are charging them to get that care, even though they're only getting nursing care because they have a you know a health need rather than a social care need, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. hmm. But you see, that's the only place you can get funded nursing care. So they'll put you in a nursing home. And if you've got more than £24,000 savings, adult social care trot along, tell you you've got to pay the rest of it. I've mm. got somebody at the moment I'm helping who's paying £1,800 a week. <laughs> she shouldn't be paying anything. You know, this person's got motor neurone disease and is really poorly. Mm. So at the end of the day, I'm getting a little bit pickled off. Kelvin Yates from um, Age UK, he told me a quarter of what's happened all over the country is down to me. So I said, oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> You're a hero or a heroine. She's a social disruptor is my favourite term for uh, yeah. <laughs> No, Stuart Cohen. Stuart Cohen gave me a new title. I used to be called a troublemaker, but I'm now a social disruptor. I said, don't mind that. It sounds posh. It sounds good. <laughs> Yes. So how, what do you think then? Are you open to people perhaps emailing you to question, to ask you? Um, could we um, put your email address or something in the newsletter so that, you know, if someone did yeah, have... you can do all of that. I've helped so many people you would not believe. Wow. I really have. That's why the <laughs> NHS don't like me much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, the, the thing was, I was at a meeting for about four or five years ago now to do with the Trust Carers Committee at Bodmin Hospital because I was on their committee for complex care and dementia. Well, I went to this meeting and the, as was then, the clinical commissioning group from Praise and Beeble were doing a presentation. And they're all up there in the corner, you see, with a microphone. And I was sitting there minding my own business like you do. Suddenly recognised one of them. I thought, oh, God. So I was hiding behind somebody but she saw me. So in the break, she called me over, introduced me to the team. And she said, we had dealings, didn't we, Pauline? I said, yes, we did, didn't we, over my mum, this was. Anyway, I've been chatting to the team. When they were going, this lady said, your problem is you know too much. I said, actually, it's not my problem, but it might be yours. <laughs> we gotta educate that's the thing that i think that's the most important message of this podcast is that everyone who has someone in their lives with dementia needs to educate themselves about what oh, their any rights terminal are illness. yeah any terminal illness doesn't matter yeah. whether it's yeah dementia any terminal illness so you gave us two tips i'm just doing this to, to not the third one you gave us two tips. The first one then was make sure you're informed and do your research. The second tip was take someone with you that can sort of support you if you get a bit bamboozled or you get emotional that they can back you up or ask more questions that you might miss or that knows their stuff as well. Like take Pauline with you, basically. Read the Care Act between sections 19 and 23 because it clearly states it's health before finance. Brilliant. And that's the so, third, is that your third tip then? 
Well, yeah, I could probably give them loads more, but I mean, it's it's getting that information right. You see, when you first find you, well, you think there's something wrong with your loved one, you go to your GP. The GPs don't tell you anything. All this information should be readily available from the word go, and it gives that carer the chance to make an informed decision on the way forward. But the problem is with Alzheimer's, or any dementia really, we're all individuals and it affects each individual person differently. I mean, my mother went beyond my capabilities because she was um, challenging to say the least. So, you know, not everybody's like that, yeah. but she was. And I think, you know, at the beginning, the GP should have a booklet or something telling you all about, you know, your way forward should you need it and not keeping it all a secret. I totally agree. I say to people all the time, I don't understand why f from that diagnosis that the G there's a cascade that needs to happen, that diagnosis, GPs informed, uh, primary care dementia practitioner connects immediately that week that you receive your diagnosis and the GPs. Then all the... Sorry, I was just saying, and then all the information that anyone would need, like the care packages from adult social care, like the sort of support that's out there, the charities that are out there, all the different things that it it it's almost like they're given a pack. I know when I was pregnant years ago now, 20 odd years ago, you know, you go to your doctor, the doctor says, yes, it's true, you're pregnant. You get put with a, um, um, what do they call, what are they called? Um, Oh, like a, what are they called? Like the woman, I'm going to say the woman, but not the woman, because it could be a man. <laughs> you know, you get you get put with your health visitor yeah. and then they do, they, they, they'll weigh you, they do all of that, but they also tell you all about what it is, all the different things that it is to have a baby, you know. So you feel like you are, um, you're informed. Informed. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, I hope Cornwall is working towards that. It feels like it is, Pauline. Um, things have changed. But, you know, when I spoke to Calvin Yates, I said, I know things have changed, but I've been shouting for 13 years. Well, probably longer than that. So I said, how much longer have I got to go on shouting for, you know? It just beggars belief. It needs somebody up in the thinking, talking to the health secretary and give them an ear bashing what it needs. Because they haven't okay. got a clue what they're talking about time they really mm. haven't mm. so you know at the end of the day it's all down to the fact that these people have got terminal illness they're going to require more nursing care not less it's not a social need the reason they have social needs is because they actually have a primary health need and the trouble is if you don't know what questions to ask you'll never find anything out because you're never given any information well, hopefully we've educated some of our friends at the memory cafes and our volunteers and everyone that's, um, you know, helping to support the memory cafe as well as their friends and families. And this will be a way forward. You know, if we can educate everyone, at least in Cornwall, um, you know, we could be the model place for dementia well, care. I, Who knows? 